Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of the book of Hebrews. I was just lamenting that as I've gotten older as a pastor, I've realized that I'm capable of teaching on less and less of God's Word. You simply can't do it justice. And when you're, when you're a young man, you don't realize that, and so you leap into it boldly. Um, the older you get, the more fear and trepidation there is. And, um, you know, one of the things that we'll be looking at at this, at this text, uh, you know, is, is, well, maybe I'll put it this way, a reminder that this class isn't our Sunday morning in-depth class. <laughs> So we're, we're going to have to treat some things superficially here, and there's going to be probably a number of places in this text where I'm going to say, I don't know, or here's a few views on this, I'm not certain. Um, and there's just going to have to be kind of the limitations we set for ourselves as we go through this class. It's how it's been designed, it's how we've been teaching us, teaching this class if you've been following with us through the Old Testament books. You know, there's places where we go into some depth, but not a whole lot. By and large, these are let's move quickly, cover the content, not dive particularly deep, etc. So it's gonna, it's gonna follow much the same as we go into this. Before we begin, um, with sort of the, the, the introductory materials, let's have the invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Um, as with all of our texts, I teach them from the Lutheran Study Bible. If you don't have one, you really should get one. It's definitely worth your time. And we're just going to pick up on, for, with the introductory materials presented in this text. Um, page 2102, if you're looking for that. And again, if you know me and you know the way I teach these classes, I don't do a whole lot of time, like historical context, you know, all of that. Again, my rationale for that is uh, largely it's so much speculative and it's so much uncertain that I just don't, frankly, like to spend a lot of time on things that are ultimately disputed or debated or uncertain. So similar with this. We don't know when the book of Hebrews was written and we don't know who wrote it. So it's got kind of that, those initial controversies. Um, if you look at the timeline presented on, on the top of page 2102, you're going to, of course, see the resurrection and ascension and Pentecost all dated around AD 33. The next marker on the timeline is the Jerusalem Council, AD 49. After that is a major marker, the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, A.D. 68. Then, of course, the Romans destroy Jerusalem, A.D. 70. The broadest time period in which kind of scholars argue about when this could have been authored ranges from anywhere from 50 to 90 A.D. Now, what is sort of the major, like, uh, well, I don't know, really. One of the major signposts when you're talking about the dating of, of uh, New Testament books is always the destruction of the temple. And that's particularly in view and particularly of interest with this text where the author is going to present Christ as 
the new priest, the new king, the new sacrifice, the new temple, superior in every way. I think there's like 12 different ways in which Christ is superior in this, uh, in this epistle, or shall we say sermon. We'll get into that in a moment. But um, anyway, is, does this come before 70 when the temple is destroyed or after? Most of, those, most of the conservative Lutheran scholars are going to say before 70. So that'll kind of give you the period, and um, we don't really know exactly when. And we don't know who wrote it. Let me give you a little list. Could be Barnabas. Could be Apollos. You remember him? Um, Paul finds him, and he has just about everything right. Not quite right. Could be Apollos. Could be St. Paul. Could be Clement of Rome. Could be Luke. Maybe some of the more conservative traditions overall t tend toward um, St. Paul. But um, here in this commentary, which find time to do a little commercial for that, um, John Kleinig, one of our great Old Testament scholars, he's written the, um, the commentary on Hebrews that I'm going to be using here, to, again, to some degree. If you know Kleinig and if you can see the uh, number of pages in this book, it goes pretty deep, and I'm not going to be able to go all that deep with this class. But anyway, I highly commend this to you. It's excellent. He tends to think um, the most likely is Luke. Okay, fine, great. In, um, in a few minutes, we're going to read from Luther, where Luther thinks that probably Apollos is the most likely. All right, well, that makes it easy. <laughs> Anybody want to flip a coin? Yeah, we just don't know who wrote it. Um, that's the bottom line. And we don't know when precisely it was written. We do know that, the, of course, the major themes, as I just expressed, are really the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament with Christ front and center. And that's going to be spelled out for us in obvious form. If we, um, if we kind of read through the document itself, in chapter 13, verse 22, if we jump, jump with me, if you will, just because this is still preliminary material, it just happens to come from the actual written text itself. Hebrews 13, 22. This is often called a sermon, like what the early Christians would have heard on a Sunday morning, as it were, with a, with a short letter attached at the end. And so what you're seeing here, um, you can even see the heading given um, over before verse 20. You can see the benediction. You can tell that this is written in such a way it already kind of fits a liturgical context. The benediction comes, and then there's this final greetings, this last little mini letter tacked on. And if you look at verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. Now, if you go to the Greek there and you do a little analysis, this word of exhortation is synonymous in the early church with sermon. So, um, we have reason to believe that this is a sermon with a little letter attached on it. So whether I refer to it as an epistle or a sermon, I hope you'll understand what I mean. All right. Now, back to page 2102. And one final point to make, and that is that um, if you look at the study note up at top, I had stopped at 70 AD with the Romans destroying Jerusalem. We talked about that as kind of this benchmark of is the text before or after this. And um, again, most Lutheran 
commentators saying before. The final note there is relevant because in AD 96 you have this comment that Clement of Rome cites Hebrews. And he's kind of the first in the early church to cite Hebrews at length and authoritatively. So um, worth pointing out and that's why it's listed here as one of the major markers. Well, as I always like to do, I like to take a look at um, what Luther has to say about any given text. It's always interesting, sometimes challenging, and I think that that's, it's safe to say that this will be both interesting and challenging for us to look at Luther's view on the book of Hebrews. Right? So let's go ahead and do that, unless of course there are any preliminary questions or anything I made confusing. Um, here to four. The vicar's got a comment. Are we running a microphone? To okay, thank you so much. Hang on one second. We'll get the vicar's expertise here. Hopefully his expertise and not a question. <laughs> no questions from you this entire class, vicar. Well, it is a question. Uh, <laughs> I was just wondering what uh, Kleinig's, what you found to be um, his most compelling argument for why Luke is the purported author. Um, let me see very quickly if I can... Hang on one second. I'm trying to find. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I might have mistook him. I might have mistook him. I'm sorry. Hang on one second. Let me see if I've got this right. I'm glad you asked this question now because it gives me opportunity to clarify. Okay. The most likely candidates for author are, this is what I did. I reversed it, are in order of increase. Wait a minute. This is what's confusing me. In order of increasing probability, Barnabas, Apollos, does that mean Apollos is better? Mm -hmm. Well, then I did read it right. Okay, the, the, again, Kleinick, the most likely candidates for author are in order of increasing probability, Barnabas, Apollos, St. Paul, Clement of Rome, and Luke. That would make Luke the most. Okay, then I wasn't wrong. All right, good. I can still read. Every <laughs> once in a while, I question that. <laughs> kind of a prerequisite. Um, let me, let me just, okay, so here's what he has to say. What he does is he kind of goes through the cases of each of these building up, and then here's what he has to say about um, Luke in particular. Uh, all right, um, the ascription of Hebrews to Luke stems from Origen's remark that some of his predecessors had regarded Luke as its author. Just checking the footnote here, nothing more pertinent. It rests on Luke's close association with Paul. I mean, if you notice, that's kind of a theme, isn't it? I mean, Barnabas, Apollos, and Luke all have very close connection. And so that's kind of where people are saying, even if somebody else wrote it, it's got kind of Pauline hallmarks to it, right? All right, well, continuing on. It rests on Luke's close association with Paul and his possible Jewish identity, his literary and rhetorical expertise, the use of vocabulary common to both Hebrews and Luke Acts, on that twofold work, and similarities in style. The claim is also made that Luke agrees with Hebrews in its pastoral purpose and its theological emphasis on the priestly status and work of the exalted Lord Jesus. Okay, then just to wrap it up, and so Kleinig 
is rightly understood. Despite these proposals, we do not actually know who wrote Hebrews, but we do know that even though the author was obviously known by his hearers, his identity remains undisclosed because he did not wish to emphasize his own personal authority. Instead, he spoke God's word in a self-effacing way as one who had heard it from those who had heard it from the Lord Jesus. And there's a reference there to chapter 2, verse 3. So if we just take a look at that, um, chapter 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, etc. So his point being, the Lord, this next generation, him. Kind of. I mean, generation very loosely understood, right? More of a more of a tra generation of tradition passing. <laughs> All right. So good question. Thank you. Thank you for that. Questions that Kleinig very clearly and easily answers, and I've already researched from him, are welcome. <laughs> Did I see another? Yes, please. This is maybe incidental, but when at Concordia Chicago a hundred years ago, Luke was uh, promoted as the author of this, uh, and you just—it mm. was almost anathema that you considered anybody else to have written it. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I in my in my um, in my time on this earth, I've heard it go back and forth so many times. It's just you know. Yeah. Ah. Second question. Uh, second point is this. You mentioned Apollos rather uh, uh, strongly that I should know Apollos. Oh, yeah. Uh, please, what is he um, significant? You remember from the books, uh, book of Acts. Uh, it's, uh, it's Paul and isn't it Achilla and Priscilla? Do I have this right? I should have looked it all up, but I didn't have time. Um, but yeah, they, they find this guy, Apollos, and he's preaching mightily from the scriptures. And I forget exactly how it's wor worded in Luke, but paraphrasing, like, he's got a couple things off. So they pull him aside, they correct him on a couple of these things, and he becomes a champion. He's referenced again in um, 1 Corinthians as a co-worker with Paul. Remember Paul doing the uh, planting and Apollos doing the watering. So yes, he kind of yes. looms large as a... Uh, as a very a man very knowledgeable in the Old Testament scriptures in particular, and putting forward Christ as the fulfillment of those scriptures, which is why, and so that coupled with his proximity with Saint Paul, have made him a candidate mm -hmm. for the author of this text. The other comment is, I think this is the first time I'm having conversation with hearing any reference to Clement uh, when in the the uh, cathedral in Rome mm -hmm. in uh, to honor. Paul, Clement was, he was one of the last, wasn't he, of the, of all of them? And that when you're standing in that, I call it cathedral today, you have a, um, gigantic, probably the, the width of the, uh, televisions up there of all these, the names that you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's one empty, um, oval in that, masterful cathedral mm -hmm. that is empty and it and the the guide said that when that last um this is so insignificant i don't i shouldn't even mention it but when that last uh character is is in uh full force on planet earth that 
you will know, after Clement, you will know that the Christ will be returning soon after his presentation in that oval. Mm, it's just kind of strange. That is kind of strange. And isn't, isn't that the man uh, for whom uh, San Clemente is named? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, not, I don't think... I don't think directly, but obviously this, this well, Clemente, I, after you know, which San Clemente is named, is named after him, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, it's it yeah, just I it's so. it's I just find all of that my silliness to be. Yeah. Well, thank you for that commentary. I mean, I from what I could tell, you were saying Jesus is due any time, and that's good news to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get, get me hyped about that. That's the ultimate waiting game, isn't it? Let's let's do it, Lord. Today's a good day. We got to we'll clear our schedules. <laughs> I don't even have a test tomorrow. So, hey. Um yeah, thank you for that commentary. Okay, so where were we? We were just talking about the preliminary materials. We we're talking about possible authorship. Nobody really knows. Kleinig leans towards Luke on the basis of origin, but yeah. And then um, we don't know the exact time written either. We've said that it's a sermon with a letter attached. Obviously, it's written form, so calling it an epistle is no problem either. Um, and then what else do we want to do? We want to do Luther? Yeah, Luther's co quite controversial on it. Um, I think I think one thing to point out this you know what Luther frequently does as he introduces books um, and regarding their can canonicity or regarding their teaching he judges and weights those against the books that are so there's this distinction Vicar you probably learned all this so you can correct me where it's gotten dusty and distorted in my mind but you've got this this kind of twofold distinction between homologomena and anti-legomena and homologomena um, usually these days anything that begins with homo isn't really great but um, in this case it is and homologomena means all universally spoken together and these are the texts that the church really throughout its history never had any controversy we all, they all say either either we know the apostolic origin the apostle who wrote this or we know it has the imprimatur of uh, an apostle it's just not controversial this is in this is one of our holy books this is one of our scriptures okay but then there are a set of texts um, that are included in our new testament canon in your new testament in your bible and these would be called anti-legomena anti means they were spoken against and this just means that either in some ge ge geographic place or at some time a group of Christ christians questioned whether this in fact came from an apostle or had an apostolic imprimatur maybe even they questioned if it if if this particular doctrine or section was in keeping with the rest of the apostolic teaching and deposit and so the church just acknowledges that there's this homologomena and antilegomena, kind of the agreement here is, well, we're not going to create any doctrines that are binding on Christian churches, binding on individual Christians, if it only is found in the antilegomena texts. Okay, so um, Hebrews, it happens to be an antilegomena text. Just You can tell that there's no author and there's disputed as to who the author is. Sometimes that's just enough. Um, Revelation is often referred to as an anti-legomena text. Why? It's weird. It's hard to understand. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, I love it. I've got no problem with it. Um, and it's just kind of, hey, is this, in, there are Christians along the way, churches along the way, said, hey, is this part of the canon or not? Um, I think Second Peter is another one. I think Jude might be another one. I can't remember. Does any of this ring a bell? At least I'm not misspeaking, hopefully. So, um, 
okay, what am I trying to get at? I'm trying to get at throughout the history of the church in a way that's strange to us here in America because we've been so kind of, uh, um, as uh, the Christian church in America is kind of very fundamentalistic and kind of this sense of like, here's the Bible, bonk. You know, the same as when it descended from heaven 2,000 years ago in precisely this form. <laughs> well, of course, we know that that's not true. And so to us in America, even as Lutherans, and even though we've got this in our history and our background and we're educated, we know all this, and we're connected with the tradition of the church going back 2,000 years, this is so heavy in our minds that we tend to just think of it as this is God's word. And we don't see any kind of distinction or room for distinction or debate. In this, we're weird. Yeah, we're weird. <laughs> because in all times and places and in the history of the church, there's always been question and debate as, is this homologamina, antilegamina? Is this part right? Is that part not right? Is this part um, in keeping with the apostolic uh, canon? Is this part not? I mean, this just goes on forever and ever. And so Luther in making these comments isn't outside the norm. He's within the norm. And even with his in his generation, there are lots and lots of people, um, obviously in the West, in the Roman Catholic Church, um, making the same kinds of claims and arguments Luther's making. So how does this get misrepresented in our common context? Because you're driving down the five freeway, there's a terrible traffic jam, you're already in a bad mood, you flip to 1000 AM and you're listening to the Roman Catholic station and they're telling you that, you know, Luther thinks that James is an epistle of straw and parts of Hebrews are an epistle of straw and, um, um, these things should be excised and, oh, what a heretic Luther is for thinking this way. Not letting you know that Roman Catholics of Luther's own time and place were making the same kind of arguments and his contemporaries are not going <gasps> and clutching pearls that Luther's questioning these things because they're all doing the same thing. This is just the way they were doing theology and suddenly now in our fundamentalistic context we're not doing theology in, in, in that way and it's being used abusively by Roman Catholic apologists to try to paint Luther as being some kind of weirdo who is destroying the Bible. Does that make sense? Hopefully. All right. So anyway, all that will give you a little bit of background to how it is that Luther can make these claims that may be scandalous to our ears in some regards, um, but, you know, probably shouldn't be. Okay, so Luther on Hebrews, without further ado, and again, if you're in your study Bible, page 2102. In Luther's preface to Hebrews cited below, he reflects some of the historic concerns raised about the book, which was not at first universally received as an apostolic letter or as a book of Holy Scripture. You can see anonymous below. Though Luther notes the book's quote-unquote hard knots and straw, quote-unquote straw, weaknesses, and then see notes on various verses. He elsewhere cites Hebrews as authoritative teaching. For example, look at all these things in his works. Okay. He sees the Holy Spirit bearing witness through the book and refers to it as, quote-unquote, Holy Scripture. The Lutheran confessions cite Hebrews as God's word alongside other texts of Holy Scripture. For more about the book's canon uh, canonicity, see pages 2099 to 2101. Okay, and you can, you can turn there if you want on your own time. It's just kind of going to give you a little bit of the background I shared with you. All right, so then here Luther um, proper quoted. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews, whoever he is, whether Paul or as I think Apollos, quotes the Old Testament most learnedly. 
If you would interpret the books of Moses well and confidently, set Christ before you, for he is the man to whom it all applies, every bit of it. Make the high priest Aaron, then, to be nobody but Christ alone, as does the epistle to the Hebrews. What's, what's he getting at? That the historical figure of Aaron in the Old Testament is chiefly a type of Christ who is to come and is fulfilled in Christ. Luther continues, which is sufficient all by itself to interpret all the figures of Moses, all the, all the types and images um, you might find in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Likewise, as the same epistle announces, it is certain that Christ himself is the sacrifice, indeed even the altar, who sacrificed himself with his own blood. All right, so already just reading Luther, we can tell that he is the high priest, he is the sacrifice, and he is the altar. In other words, Hebrews is going to be all about Christ because the Old Testament is all about Christ. Luther continues, Now, whereas the sacrifice performed by the Levitical high priest took away only the artificial sins, which in their nature were not sins, so our high priest, Christ, by his own sacrifice and blood, has taken away the true sin, that which in its very nature is sin. All right, Luther's doing a complicated thing here, to be sure. But what he's, what he's alluding to is that the, um, the ceremony, uh, yeah, some of the ceremony and civil laws of the Old Testament, um, are not actually sins in and of themselves, but are only sins because God said for that time and that place don't take. So it's a difference here between a temporary law and a moral, eternal, or universal law. All right, what's an example? Well, as your favorite anti-Christian commenters and all throughout popular culture and social media today, you know, anytime a Christian says anything's bad, immediately it's followed up with, look at this guy wearing two different kinds of fabric. You know, because there's some place in the Old Testament in the civil law, ceremonial law that says you're not supposed to wear these two different kinds of fabric at the same time. Okay. So, haha, we got you, Christian. Your whole faith is a scam. No, you don't understand Christianity. You don't understand the first part of it. These things are civil and ceremonial laws that were long ago set away. Nor are we, in, nor even in the, in the Old Testament context, are we saying that these are some sort of universal morals? No, they were given to God's people for a time. And so that's what Luther's referring to here when he says artificial sins, okay? To break these laws were indeed sin at the time, but not sin after the way of breaking the natural law, codified, for example, in the essence of the Ten Commandments. All right, so you've got these artificial sins covered by the blood of beasts. This is kind of what Luther is doing in the Levitical priesthood versus the real sins covered by the blood of Christ and Christ being the high priest. Um, we're going to see the specific nature of that as we go on with the book of Hebrews, but um, Christ's real blood being a real forgiveness for real sins. True sin, that which is in its very nature sin, as Luther says. So picking up third line from the bottom on page 2102, he has gone in once for all through the curtain, that's Christ, the imagery here is the temple, through the curtain into the holiest of holies, through the curtain to God to make atonement for us. Um, this is kind of like, remember Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the high priest once a year would go in with the blood of the lamb and put it on the high, yeah, that's what this is all referencing to. So this is what Luther's alluding to. 
And you can see the editors have stuck in Hebrews 9.12, so we don't need to belabor the point. We'll spend lots of time on this, on this thought later on. Wrapping up this uh, section from Luther's uh, volume 35 of his American edition. Thus, you should apply to Christ personally and to no one else all that is written about the high priest. All right, so there's one significant section. Now, nothing terribly controversial in that section. In fact, just very, very solid. In the section that is to come, we'll kind of introduce maybe some more difficult ideas for us to wrap our minds around for reasons I previously mentioned. So these quotations, it looks like entirely coming from his 29th volume, the 29th volume of his American edition works. He writes, up to this point, we have had to, to do with the true and certain chief books of the New Testament. The four which follow have from ancient times had a different reputation. In the first place, the fact that Hebrews is not an epistle of St. Paul or of any other apostle is proved by what it says in chapter 2, verse 3, that through those who had themselves heard it from the Lord, this doctrine has come to us and remained among us. It is thereby made clear that he is speaking about the apostles as a disciple to whom this doctrine has come from the apostles, perhaps long after them. For St. Paul in Galatians uh, 1 testifies powerfully that he has his gospel from no man, neither through men, but from God himself. Again, there is a hard knot in the fact that in chapter 6, and particularly here verses 4 through 6 are in view, and 10, so chapter 6 and 10, particularly verses 26 and 27 in view in chapter 10, it flatly denies and forbids to sinners any repentance after baptism. And in chapter 12, it says that Esau sought repentance and did not find it. This seems, as it stands, to be contrary to all the Gospels and to St. Paul's epistles. And although one might venture an interpretation of it, the words are so clear that I do not know whether that would be sufficient. My opinion is that this is an epistle put together of many pieces which does not deal systematically with any one subject. Okay, so we've already identified some sections that for Luther, at least at the time of this writing, um, were very problematic, and he can't help but see them contradicting various parts of the apostolic testimony. Now, did Luther descend from heaven with some kind of perfect ability to exegete? No. So we're going to put Luther to the test, and we'll use John Kleinig, and we'll use some of the other resources and voices and commentators um, who, have, who have tried to make sense of this in light of the rest of the biblical testimony. We'll see if it's redeemable, or we'll see if at the end we kind of agree with Luther that these are all sections pieced together, and this is a section we can safely ignore. Uh, just to kind of like you know, I respect Luther greatly. I see why he says that, but I don't think it's of necessity to hold what he holds on this point exegetically. So that's my own perspective, just to be completely transparent about that. Um, if you look through my, if you look through my Bible, you won't find that I've taken scissors and carefully cut out those sections. Okay, let's carry on just a little bit more with Luther. It's a little spicy, isn't it? It's a little interesting. Luther, rarely dull. He writes, however that may be, 
It is still a marvelously fine epistle. It discusses Christ's priesthood masterfully and profoundly on the basis of the scriptures and extensively interprets the Old Testament in a fine way. Thus it is plain that this is the work of an able and learned man. As a disciple of the apostles, he had learned much from them and was greatly experienced in faith and practiced in the scriptures. Man, the opening chapter, if nothing else, will kind of blow your mind in terms of the depth of this guy's knowledge, whoever he may be. And although, as he himself testifies in chapter 6, he does not lay the foundation of faith that is the work of the apostles, nevertheless he does build well on it with gold, silver, precious stones, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Interesting, because now we have a different way and, and a nuanced way to understand Luther's claims that things are straw. What's he talking here it seems quite clear that he's talking about 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says that no other foundation can be laid except that which is Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in him will be saved. But upon that foundation each must build. And some will build with wood, hay, and straw, and stubble, right? Straw. And others with gold, silver, and precious stones. The whole point being that you want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Why? because they are fireproof. <laughs> and the judgment that's coming tests it all with fire, and the wood, hay, and the stubble doesn't last. The rest does. So you can see how, from Luther's perspective, it really coheres to say, look, and so this is just taking him in this one writing, look, Hebrews is filled with gold, silver, and precious stones. There's just a little stubble here or there that would be burnt off. That's his take. And I think that puts it in a much more accurate light to what he means, where again, sometimes you get on the radio and the Roman Catholic apologist says, oh, he said it's straw, and, uh, you know, worthless. Yeah, I, oh, it's just, it's deceiving, it's misleading in the way it's presented. Um, you're not understanding the right frame in which Luther's properly viewing it. Okay, well, all that to say, he does have very high regard for the contents of Hebrews, um, citing the author as a very learned and experienced man um, in terms of his faith and his understanding of the scriptures. Um, nevertheless, he does build well on it, Luther says, with gold, silver, precious stones, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Therefore, we should not be deterred if wood, straw, or hay are perhaps mixed with them, but accept this fine teaching with all honor, though to be sure we cannot put it on the same level with the apostolic epistles. Who wrote it is not known and will probably not be known for a while. It makes no difference. We should be satisfied with the doctrine that he bases so constantly on the scriptures, for he discloses a firm grasp of the reading of the scriptures and of the proper way of dealing with them. And then the editor says, for more on Luther's insights on this book, you can see his lectures on Hebrews. American Edition 29. All right. Any thoughts you have on Luther? Any thoughts you have on that? Fairly well enough explained? Yeah. Just fairly par for the course. Okay, well, what the editors do next is they do some challenges for the readers, and rather than have them tell us what the challenges are, how about if we just read the text and find out for ourselves? Yeah, they're going to make themselves apparent. <laughs> Almost right away. 
All right. Chapter 1, verse 1. Ready? Off we go. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All right, so we have a lengthy sentence jam-packed with interesting things. Um, what do we see in when we look back to the fathers, um, the patriarchs of, uh, of the Hebrew people? We see that God raises up prophets, and we see that those prophets have oral proclamation, written revelation, and even enacted prophetic uh, kinds of events occur. Um, remember Hosea marrying the prostitute as Yahweh marrying his people, the unclean Israelites. And remember Isaiah up for grabs as to whether he walked around entirely naked or just kind of in the Old Testament version of a bikini. But anyway, lewd as he was preaching so that Israel would have to recognize their own lewdness in order to receive his message. So all kinds of different prophetic embodiments. Some of you are shaking your head. Don't expect that from me on a Sunday morning. God really. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So in many and various ways, God spoke to his people, to the fathers of old by the prophets. Now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What does that mean? means that Jesus is the climax of the prophetic message. He's the fulfillment of it. They're all silenced. Why? Because the one of whom they were speaking and prophesying has come. And now he is the final revelation of God to us. We can understand this in a perfectly nuanced way, as even the author of Hebrews evidences in chapter 2, um, that it's not just Jesus and like, well, what about Peter? No, he's not Jesus. What about Paul? No, he's not Jesus. That, that's not what he's saying. The manifested revelation in Jesus, and then we could very easily say as Jesus reveals himself to us through his apostles yeah, and through the, through the apostolic scriptures. Okay, so we have Christ as the, as the revelator, no longer the prophets. And already that's, you know, if you're paying attention, and you kind of know what the author of Hebrews is doing. Um, have we moved from the lesser to the greater or from the greater to the lesser? We've moved from the lesser, the manifold prophecy of the prophets, to the greater, the instantiation of the Son and his revelation to us. Make sense? Okay, so we've got a development here, a transition from Old Testament to New, and the New Testament is the time to be alive. We'll address this in many and various ways as we go along. All right, so what of these last days? Now, some people want to read here now in these last days as kind of like um, there's this typology of the day, the seventh day um, and the eighth day, and this, this kind of typology of you know the last day being the seventh day, the eighth day kind of being this culmination of the last and the first, and that there's a possible reference here to that. I don't think Kleinig finds that convincing. I don't find that convincing. I think that what the author of Hebrews is asserting is that we are in the last days on account of the revelation of the Son, and what we would simply assert without any embarrassment is we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. In what way do we understand that? Well, we just... 
refresh our minds. We kind of flush out this idea of, you know, sometimes your, your evangelical friends will whisper to you, do you think we're in the last days? Absolutely, we have been for 2,000 years. <laughs> so we've, we flush out this, this evangelical understanding of like, you know, is this, is this really it? Um, and we just, we think more biblically. We allow our minds to be filled with the biblical definition. Of course it's the last days. The sun is the last promise of the scriptures, all fulfilled, and we are in the era of the sun until he returns. The era of the sun is the era of the last days. There are no days after this. It, like, you know, you could say, you could say in the days of Adam, there are certainly days after this. There are going to be the, the days of, of, um, Noah and the, and, and the, um, the post-Diluvian world. You could say that there's the days of Abraham and his children. There's the days of the nation state of Israel, the kingship. And you can say then there's the days of Christ that are to come. But now that Christ has come, we're not looking forward to any other days. Even the return of Christ is still the Christ event, you see? So it's all part and parcel of what the scriptures believe to be the end times. One of the things where we don't need to get ourselves all in a, in a huff and in a concern when, you know, well, they, the apostles thought it was the end times. Were, were they not at least wrong on this point? Now, Jesus thought it was the end point, end times. Was he not wrong on at least this point? Did they get a little too excited and get ahead of themselves? Did God change his mind? Um, all of this is nonsense. If you just flush your mind of the contemporary understanding of end times and fill it instead with the biblical content, that we're in the last manifestation of God's salvific acts on earth before it's all wrapped up. That's it. Then the end times can last 2,000, 4,000, 10,000. Who cares? Nothing changes until the end of the age. There's nothing more we're looking forward to. All right, hopefully that helps a little. Now, it is um, God speaking through his Son to us. And this son whom he appointed, the heir, the inheritor of all things, and through whom also he created the world. And it's just such a beautiful expression. You almost ruin it by talking about it. So I'm gonna, so that's all I'm gonna say. No. <laughs> but, but there's this beautiful symmetry. In the beginning, the world was created through him, all came out from him, and it's all returning to him as an inheritance. We can load that with all kinds of theology if we want, but you know, I think I think maybe if we just think in the broadest terms of the Old Testament, this is the this is the bride of Christ. It's all created through him. The bride is fashioned and formed and returned to him. He's the he's then the heir of all that belongs to his father, the heir of the bride. Um, I mean the the bridegroom of the bride. So um, you know, however you want to kind of load that, you can see this, it all comes from him. It all is given to him. All right, verse um, 3. Beautiful, beautiful language and language taken up in the Christological controversies of the early church. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. All right, I'll give you the low-hanging fruit on this. Um, and this is really kind of taken from Kleinig. The radiance of the glory of God, maybe the best way to picture this is as the, as the sun is shining, okay, and you could, you could maybe make a distinction between the sun and the sun's radiance, okay? Are they one and the same? Yes. And yet are they distinct? Sure. And so that's a way of viewing Christ as the radiance of the God as light radiates from the sun. Um, the sun radiates from the Father. 
and their two are one and yet distinguishable, distinct. Okay? What about the exact imprint of his nature? Kleinig here says it's the, the language comes from like if you took a signet ring or a stamp and you press it into um, a seal or clay and you get that mark. Okay, so as the, as the indentation, as the mark is to the thing that indented it, so Christ is to God. You can almost picture these, if you will, abstractly as a symmetry, an interlocking symmetry, um, such that the, the Son reflects the Father, and yet is not, um, not only like a, a pure reflection, but also a complement of the Father. It makes perfect sense if you think the Father's not much of a Father unless he has a Son, and the Son can't possibly be a Son unless he has a Father. And so it's just another fun way and avenue, rather profound way of, of, um, that God has given to us in, in terms of his self-revelation of who he is. Do we feel like we want to do more on that? Do you, do you want me to pull Kleinig up? you want to get into more detail on those two phrases, or are we okay with those? Okay, I'm seeing <laughs> That's enough. Keep going, please. It is rich, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's more that could be said for sure. All right, so he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, now the he here is Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this upholds as a continued action. You know, it's kind of fun to think about sometimes. It's a little existential, a little woo-woo. But again, it's probably actually good to think in this way. Present tense, he's sustaining everything we see around us. If he weren't sustaining it, if he stopped sustaining it, all the molecules would fly apart and the atoms and everything would go into disorder and disarray and disappear. He is the one present tense sustaining all of creation. It's a beautiful thing. So he upholds present tense, the universe, the cosmos, really, um, by the word of his power. He's doing this by his speaking. I mean, that's a very profound kind of idea. All right. After making purification for sins. Now, the making purification for sins, this is like, if, if we're Old Testament literate, this is the language of the high priest. The high priest makes purification for sins. So, already here, after making purification for sins, we're seeing Christ as the high priest, okay, who makes atonement or purification for sins. After doing this, we know that to be his cross, of course. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Ah, those of you who studied Revelation with us the last time we went through that, you remember that um, the great build-up is to the coronation of Christ. So you're in the throne room, you see the one seat, well, you don't see the one seat upon the throne, <laughs> you see all the colors and the rainbow sphere and the throne, and you never really get a good sense for who's on the throne. You see the spirit, the candelabra, the seven spirits, sevenfold spirits, the seven flames, and you're going, you're going, where's the sun? We've got the Father, we've got the Spirit, where's the Son? Remember, the Son arrives right at the question of who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll. And the Son arrives and is enthroned. Revelation 12 shows us the chronology of this. This is after his death, resurrection, and ascension, he is enthroned in heaven. Okay. Also, at that point in time, Satan, the dragon, and the, the third of the stars of heaven that he sweeps down with his tails, the other fallen angels who are still allowed to be up in heaven, 
they're all kicked out and down to earth at Jesus' ascension, his coronation, his session at the right hand at the throne of God. All right, so all of that is right here. Right here. After making purification for sins, that is, after his atoning death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he ascends into heaven and is enthroned there. What's different? He does so for the first time as a human being. Yeah, even if you wanted to say that the Son, before all this, was seated at the throne in the right hand of God, it was the Son not yet become man. So what's so profound about this is that he comes down, he's incarnate, he becomes man, thus he makes purification for the sins of all men, and then as man, resurrected and ascended as man, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So you have a man who has excelled all the angels. Beautiful, beautiful point. Fantastic. I mean, unimaginable point. All right. Now, what's this? Let's see. I will try not to skip anything, but try not to also belabor stuff. All right, let's see, let's see. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, well, what's the name he has inherited? Probably the best method for this is to just hang on and let the text answer it for itself. So let's just kind of leave that a question. What is this name he has inherited? Now, interesting, too, because of the language of inheritance, um, Check out verse 2 once more. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And now he has inherited this name that is more excellent than all of the angels. And he has done so as man and as Savior of men. I think those are important things to, to draw out here. Just beautiful. All right. Now, here comes the argument. And before we get into the argument, in fact, we may not get into much of the argument proper today, um, Kleinig points out that since we're talking about the, the coronation of Jesus in heaven and his elevation above all the angels, um, then what we actually have here is a sermon based on one of the Psalms. Now, what you see if you just glance at your text is you're going to see a whole bunch of quotations, and all of those are coming from different Psalms. But Kleinig points us to Psalm 110 as really being this, the text that is undergirding the sermon right now. So I think it would be wise for us to Put a bookmark here and um, flip over to Psalm 110, and let's see if Kleinig is right. Let's see if we can see that this is sort of the, the scriptural text from which the author of Hebrews is preaching. Because we've got this coronation, this, this enthronement, even such that he is enthroned above the angels. So then let's look at uh, Psalm 110. 
And I'll just read it through, um, probably without commentary. The Lord says to my Lord. Interesting. In, the author, in Hebrews, have we seen the Spirit yet? Huh? We've seen the Father and the Son, the Lord saying to my Lord. Now David's writing this psalm, okay? So, so the Lord says to my Lord, already you have two lords. Or as we would say with the author, Father and Son. Yeah. Okay, so fascinating, and this is one of the most beautiful things about the Psalms. The Psalms sometimes are getting a, are, are, are eavesdropping on the most heavenly conversation you can imagine. The Lord says to my Lord. The Father says to the Son. We are eavesdropping on something that only angels could hear. And yet, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit through King David, this now comes to our ears, and we're privy to this unimaginable communication, this unimaginable conversation. All right, what does he say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All right, and we're gonna, we already saw back in verse three of Hebrews chapter one, after making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it's the fulfillment of this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, what's happening right now? Well, he's already sitting at the right hand. That much has been fulfilled. What are we waiting for? the enemies to be made his footstool. And that's what we're seeing right now. That's what the spiritual battle and warfare, the put on the full armor of God, um, this, the God of peace will crush Satan under your heel as well. Um, this is what we're enduring right now, is this time in which it looks as though the principalities and powers of darkness are winning and winning way too much, but in fact they're not. They're losing and becoming his footstool. All right. I said it was going to be without commentary. How far did I make Typical pastor. Typical pastor. All right, verse 2. The Lord, try it again. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Remember, I make a table before you in the presence of your enemies. That's what that's not. Doesn't mean the people in the congregation that you don't get along with. <laughs> Sorry to ruin that for you. No, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> ah, he puts, he puts us at peace and rest and sustenance and home, even, even while our enemies, the demonic powers, the fallen angels, rage all around us. So, so then to ruling in the midst of your enemies, your people will offer themselves freely. What does St. Paul say? Make yourselves living sacrifices, your bodies living sacrifices. The people will offer themselves freely. We are the sacrifices on the day of your power in holy garments. What on earth would those holy garments be? Once more, St. Paul, do you not know that all of you who have been baptized have put on Christ? Ah, clothed in the holy garments of baptism. You can see how all of this has been fulfilled. Clothed in holy garments on the we are in the day of his power. We are offering ourselves freely. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Isn't that interesting? So, um, which Lord is swearing and won't change his mind? The Father 
is swearing and he will not change his mind. And now he says to the second Lord, who is the son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who on earth is Melchizedek? Well, we maybe have a foggy memory from Genesis. We'll go look at that in detail later. Okay, but this is the establishment of his priesthood. Now you can see how that resonates with what we covered in the first part of verse 3, after making purification for sins. What are we seeing then, if we had to, if we had to sum up the two titles that the author of Hebrews is presenting for us via the theology of Psalm 110, you would say that Christ is, what two human titles would you give him? Priest is one, and king, that's the other. Priest and king, that's what we're seeing here, just laid on as, as beautifully, as wonderfully, as thick as you can possibly have it. He is priest and king. All right, so back to 110, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, um, you know, again, these are rich texts. They've been interpreted in a number of different ways. But what's the point? The point, ultimately, if we just zoom out, is he is priest and king. He is Lord on par with the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. So what would we say? He is true God. That's the Lord said to my Lord. And he is true priest, after the order of Melchizedek, not the Levitical order, the, an order more ancient, and thus preceding Levitical priesthood, and that's not annulled in any way by the Levitical priesthood, and still there when the Levitical priesthood is gone, it's going to be the argument. And then he is the true king that precedes, supersedes, and postcedes, um, if that's a word, the uh, the uh, kingship of David reigning in the theocratic state of Israel and all the subsequent kings. So he's the true king that was, is, and ever shall be. And he's got business to do. That business is to destroy the powers of evil in this realm down here on earth. All right, that's the summary of Psalm 110. We've given it just a very basic treatment here. And you can see how I think Kleinig's right. I think Kleinig's right that Psalm 10 factors um, very heavily as, as a text from which the author of Hebrews is working as he's preaching this sermon, and particularly these opening verses of chapter 1. Now, in the weeks to come, I can promise you, we're not going to be able to go to quite this depth and detail, but I wanted to give you just a little bit of the flavor of what you know is here and, and hidden in the text and what's going on and um, how he's preaching, what his theological uh, themes are. So, let's plan to pick up next week at chapter 1, verse 5. The Lord be with you.